is science attempting to raise the dead? Well, sort of. Welcome to the 45th episode of Adam Alonzi's podcast. Tonight we will be speaking with Ira Pastor, CEO of BioCork Incorporated. Hello, Ira. Hi, Adam. How are you? Excellent. Just basking in the sunlight. And you? Uh, basking in uh, 95 degree humidity here in Philadelphia. <laughs> Fantastic. And you are founder and CEO of BioCork, uh, which is a fascinating company. It's been getting some news coverage recently for a very ambitious project. Yeah, uh, you know, BioQuark got its start as a company focusing on biologic approaches to the the issue of human regeneration and disease reversion, primarily looking to find biologic means to sort of recapitulate the dynamics that we typically only see in lower organisms, uh, amphibian, planarian, and so forth, and ultimately reignite, reawaken these capabilities in humans. Because we, as a species, we are very advanced, but from a health uh, and disease perspective, many of these organisms that have been around for hundreds of millions of years really have us us beat in terms of uh, the ability to perform feats of complex regeneration uh, the ability to undertake a complex tissue reversion in terms of cancer and other diseases, and even the ability to turn back biologic time and start over again. Uh, and you know, it was our interest in in founding this company to really study and, and go back to nature. Um, you know, essence. We've forgotten that so much of, of the pharmaceutical industry over the last hundred years got its clues originally from the natural world um, and really go back and take another look uh, at, at some of these dynamics and how uh, they were occurring and how we can ultimately sort of relearn uh, and apply them for purposes of, of human therapeutic intervention. So- what is it exactly that gives a lizard or a salamander the ability to regrow a limb? Well, it's, it's, it's a lot of things. Um, it is uh, a, uh, an ability to reprogram uh, and remodel a tissue that remains in the uh, amputated region to an earlier progenitor-like state. Uh, it involves a very targeted uh, histolytic response for removal of uh, extracellular matrix and, and dead tissues. Uh, it involves an activation of the uh, innate immune response uh, as opposed to the purely adaptive one that the humans are heavily biased towards. So it is not, you know, we, 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 we call what we, our approach sort of a combinatorial biologic approach, but uh, in an era of the development of therapeutic interventions uh, where we continue to seek sort of magic silver bullets for things, uh, this is clearly 
not a case, and it's truly not a case for any disease. And this is one, one of the reasons why we don't have many cures for most chronic degenerative diseases now. But um, this is clearly a case where one has to understand uh, the complexity uh, of some of these dynamics and think sort of outside of the box that, uh, you know, it's not just going to be another small molecule drug that is going to um, be able to allow us as humans to achieve these things, but we have to think a little broader in our approach. And ultimately, uh, you know, from a, a conservation of genetics perspective, you know, we're very similar to many of these species as humans. I mean, a lot of the genes that are activated in the regenerative process, we possess. You know, they, you know, they, they may be oncogenes uh, in many contexts, and we have to keep that in mind when, you know, if, if we try for more complex interventions like gene therapies and what have you. But if we really look at how these species activate and inactivate in sort of in a very selective manner, uh, take advantage of these unique transcriptional regulatory states, um, it, it's really going to, in our opinion, open uh, the a range of possibilities for sort of a new generation of of how we look at disease and and tissue damage. Yes, homeobox genes come to mind as those are highly conserved. And once you find the key differences between different animals, hopefully it will be pretty trivial to have us regrowing arms, legs, etc. But there are also other applications of regenerative medicine. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we look at this space and you know, we, we take that $7 trillion or so now that we spend around the world on health care. Uh, you know, when you put aside infectious diseases, uh, the majority of all that money ultimately trickles down to two things, either diseases that have an underlying degeneration component or an underlying cellular damage component. Uh, and, and this is our sweet spot. Um, you know, whether we are talking about degeneration in the case of Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, uh, diabetes, congestive heart failure, or whether we're talking about cellular damage, um, cancer, your autoimmune diseases, your fibrotic diseases, at the end of the day, um, it is all connected in the sense that we are dealing with regulatory state B. And if we can move things back to state A when disease was uh, not present, uh, when epigenetic or genetic changes had not yet occurred, uh, when the damage event had not yet occurred, um, we can do and ultimately achieve what our evolutionary friends have been able to achieve, and that is uh, really starting the process of development in a controlled fashion over again uh, for uh, appropriate um, three-dimensional uh, regeneration and repair. And so we look at the entire area of chronic degenerative disease as our ultimate target. And as you said in an earlier interview, cures are rare, comparatively rare, and I would add to that good preventative measures, barring vaccines, are also fairly rare. Yeah, this is, this is true. Um, we, uh, you know, we, we forget that the antibiotic was discovered, what, uh, 
100 years ago now, uh, and we've made a lot of headway in terms of, of treating uh, disease, uh, yet we have uh, close to no cures for, for any of these chronic degenerative ailments. And you know, a lot of that, in our opinion, and sort of why we're taking a, a slightly unconventional approach towards this, is the fact that you know, a lot of the, uh, the current system, whether it's industry or academia, loves to focus on sort of the, uh, the late appearing indications of dysfunctional tissue and organ systems, i.e. symptoms of disease, whether that's inflammation or immune response or fibrosis or thrombosis. And, and we just, we haven't spent any time really caring about the biologic factors that precede these types of abnormalities. Uh, when you couple that uh, with the fact that um, disease is rarely uh, a simple consequence of a single abnormal gene product, but is a, an emergent state uh, of multiple genes, uh, even you know, in many cases, uh, some of the, sort of the uh, single gene-oriented diseases that may have entirely different pathologies uh, based on regulatory architecture changes, um, we begin to realize why we are sitting here now in 2016 and still wondering and scratching our heads, you know, why is everything still 20 years out? Uh, where is my cure for Alzheimer's? Where is my cure for uh, lung cancer and so forth? Um, and you know, why we strategically feel that it is uh, the right time, especially in an era of, of systems biology and toxicogenomics and, and our deep understanding of some of these factors to to really take some uh, unconventional approaches as opposed to just you know looking for another small organic molecule to hit receptor x that's not going to get it done exactly and i've had liz and alex on the show in earlier episodes gene therapy and small molecules slash deep learning systems respectively what exactly is BioQuark's approach? We have taken, once again, we are interested uh, in looking at nature. We think nature is a, uh, is, is a wonderful educator. And once again, looking at the fact that the majority of everything that's happened in the last hundred years uh, has come from clues uh, from nature, whether that's plants or fungi or bacteria. Um, and you know, we chose to focus on um, a body of research that has uh, been studying the biologic dynamics occurring in ooplasms, so uh, eggs, and their ability to reprogram and remodel somatic tissues, which goes back to the 1940s. But basically, take this body of knowledge, which started off back in the days of cloning of amphibians and in vitro fertilization studies and moving into the 1970s, the uh, egg-free reconstitution experiments that were done in petri dishes. And really now in 2016, where we have some of the most advanced tools available to us, going back to this biologic milieu that we have in eggs and seeing what we can do from a uh, biopharmaceutical perspective and isolating specific components of the, the ooplasmin dynamic uh, and developing therapeutic interventions from that. 
I mean, eggs are, you know, stem cells are, you know, everywhere in the press nowadays and have been so for the last many years. But, you know, the, the egg cell, uh, in our opinion, is even more beautiful in that it creates a stem cell in the first place and is really responsible for this uh, amazing uh, retasking and reprogramming that occurs in terms of the new genome. Uh, it is the reason that uh, all of our children are born age zero uh, with uh, you know, two arms, two legs, uh, all appropriate parts, and are not born uh, with the traditional chronic diseases of older age. Uh, and it has been our goal to sort of tap this biologic capability uh, and create biologic products, so not cell-based products, uh, biologic tools to ultimately uh, apply in humans. Uh, the the interest in working along a sort of what we'll call the combinatorial approach, uh, you know, sort of came from sort of past history of mine involved in, in developing other heterogenic uh, bioproducts, uh, where sort of the concept of only looking at a single target, uh, while we know about the complexity of biology, just doesn't make sense anymore. So. Ultimately, the biologic we are developing are not uh, entirely pure like a human growth hormone or an insulin, but will be mixtures of, of certain biologic uh, moieties, whether they be peptide, protein, microRNA, and ultimately purified and developed as such. So, uh, you know, as the traditional FDA and EMA definitions of biologic product. Uh, and it is our goal and what we've been doing for the last few years is studying these uh, biomaterials in, in a range of in vitro and in vivo models uh, of both therapeutic regeneration uh, as well as uh, repair and reversion dynamics. And we are, uh, as a company, very interested, for instance, in, in cancer. And one of the phenomenal dynamics that you know, most people aren't aware of is that uh, while it is well known that the amphibian kingdom is uh, very good at regenerating, what is lesser well known is the fact that they are some of the most difficult to, basically, they're some of the most difficult species to kill with cancer. Uh, you know, there's rumors that a lot of these organisms don't develop cancer. It's, it's not true. Everything on earth develops cancer at some point. The way some of these organisms deal with it is much different. They, they don't focus on a kill event. Um, they focus more on a reversion events and how they ultimately turn cancerous tissue into normal tissue. And so uh, that is just another example of, of what we have left to learn from the natural world and apply for, for purposes in, in, in human health. Uh, and so those are just a few examples. But ultimately, uh, we uh, seek to create an entire platform based on these types of biologic interventions. It's a very big picture approach to the problem, and it's it's fairly difficult to get a single drug approved, and also very costly. What exactly is the long-term plan here? Well, ultimately, we have, as you know, as a company, we have multiple hats. I mean, from the uh, the drug development perspective, uh, as far as the U.S. and and Western Europe is concerned. We are a biologic. Uh, we will be developed, uh, you know, as a biologic, uh, and uh, you know, based on the fact that we are working with living materials, uh, our product will be much more defined based on its uh, bioactivity and its production systems, opposed to pure composition of matter. But ultimately, there are 
uh, other heterogenic bioproducts that exist uh, on the market in the United States. They generate billions of dollars. Um, and there's a clear development path for uh, taking products of this nature uh, through, through development and through the agency. Uh, but that is a long-term plan uh, and, and, and a big a big financial burden. Uh, on the other hand, uh, our materials, based on the fact that they have come from the natural world and there are proxies that uh, potentially exist in other markets, we are actively as a company exploring the, the non-RX opportunities uh, of the portfolio, specifically as it relates to uh, health and wellness, uh, dermacosmetic applications, uh, specifically related to uh, the aging process. And so we were actively uh, you know, developing uh, products and prototypes, working with contract manufacturers here in the U.S. East Coast uh, in terms of different uh, administration vehicles. Uh, so we are we're actively investing in all aspects of the particular program. Um, and, you know, there's been uh, a lot of interest as of late in uh, XUS uh, opportunities, because once again, when you deal with uh, products or biologic materials that are not necessarily pure drugs, uh, in different countries, they can have different regulatory definitions. So we are actively out there on the road as well. Um, 100 countries out there and, and not everything that is a drug in the United States uh, needs to be developed as a drug in uh, country X, Y, and Z. And so we sort of as a third pillar are looking for uh, what we'll call international uh, regulatory opportunities to move into sort of first in human type experiences quicker than the U.S. program. You have irons in the fire and a sound plan. We believe so. Now, the big piece of news, which will probably serve as the teaser for the title of this episode is that you have received permission from a hospital to experiment with certifiably dead bodies. And the first question that a friend of mine asked, I told him I was going to do this podcast was how dead are they? Very good question. So the nature of the, uh, Reanima project, uh, or the the mission of the project, has been to uh, take a form of research that actually you know, exists here in the United States as well, uh, and exists in other countries that existed for the last few decades, known as living cadaver research, which has been primarily used by pharmaceutical companies and other research institutions for studying dynamics such as pharmacokinetics, toxicology, pharmacodynamics, and so forth, uh, in ultimately what is the, the ultimate model, which is the human model, uh, but doing so um, you, with these subjects that have given their consent in their bodies to, to scientific research. Um, so this body of research has existed. Now, what is a living cadaver? A living cadaver is somebody who meets the uh, unified determination of death criteria. So you know, the current criteria 
uh, of death in the U.S. and around the world is known as brain death, which is known as an irreversible cessation of both higher brain function and brainstem function. Yet, these subjects are maintained on, we'll call, cardiopulmonary and trophic support. So they're being supported externally by different mechanisms that we find in an intensive care unit and being preserved at a certain level of, of life to study interventions. Uh, we spent a couple of years sort of investigating the space before we got actively involved in it um, and, and you know, found that this research <laughs> quietly, it, it's not... Sexy in the sense that, you know, when you're, you know, very typical cancer study or Alzheimer's disease study, what have you, but living cadaver studies do go on. Um, they go on all over the place. Uh, and so we made the decision that we were going to take some uh, initial steps into this area, specifically as it pertains to uh, very early regenerative dynamics in uh, the brainstem of recently. Uh, deceased individuals. The so that's the basic criteria for these subjects. Let me let me put a caveat on you, what we're not dealing with here. Uh, we are not dealing uh, with uh, any catastrophic forms of death, so something that you would find in a war zone. Uh, we are not dealing with any time-sensitive aspects of death, such as a a murder victim that may have been found days later. Uh, and we are not dealing with brain death as a sequelae of a chronic degenerative disease. So an elderly individual that has metastatic cancer is not a target. And lastly, just to clear things up for the uh, the public so they understand this, um, these are not corpses that have gone beyond the, um, the physical uh, attributes of death. So uh, rigor mortis and putrefaction and things of that nature, uh, just so we can get the, the Frankenstein uh, comparisons off the table right now. We're specifically dealing with uh, acute trauma uh, where there is a, an intact uh, higher system remaining. Uh, and you know, ultimately, uh, besides the, the interest out there that was generated from many prominent brain death cases that have been in the press the last few years uh, is the fact that we, you know, once again, once going back to nature, we do have many species out there that are capable of, for lack of a better, you know, growing back a brain that has been either partially or completely blown away. Uh, and it, it was just our interest and the, the model of studying, once again, epimorphic events in nature and how we could ultimately apply those learnings to an area of research, namely that of the severe disorders of consciousness, which not a lot of activity happens in nowadays, uh, but ultimately how we could start addressing these subjects in a legitimate fashion. Uh, no one's we're not we're, we're not reanimating anybody tomorrow, but uh, we believe this type of research combined with where the technologies in terms of regenerative medicine and other tools have gotten us in the year 2016 
it's about time to sort of reconsider the definition that was formed in 1968 and think, well, technologically, we're half century down the road now. Maybe we should begin to look at some of these possibilities um, and, and, and put them on the table. So I think the next question that has come to everyone's mind at this point is, what exactly are you doing or going to do to these living cadavers? Right now, the research, uh, well, the protocol is entirely focused on how we merge together uh, certain biologic tools, namely uh, what BioQuark has been developing in terms of the biologic side for conditioning of tissue microenvironments for regeneration, so sort of to move uh, the current, what we'll call the morphostatic uh, environment that typically uh, is the enemy of the stem cell system. And one of the reasons why sort of stem cell outcomes have been uh, rather few and far between. So sort of preconditioning a dying or dead microenvironment uh, away from those dynamics to ultimately one of a morphogenesis where then cellular tools such as stem cells uh, could be appropriately used and begin to study the very early dynamics of both neurogenesis and vasculogenesis in that region of the brain stem, sort of the lower brain stem where the lowest region of brain death that occurs before one hits the spinal column, and ultimately look and try to recapitulate how, as we see in nature, the uh, epimorphic events of regeneration and say the salamander when one cuts the brain out uh, ultimately regenerates upward in an epimorphic fashion from the spinal cord into the central the higher parts of the central nervous system so you know this is very early stage very exploratory and we've just created the protocol and are on our path but we realize that this is a a longer term project a bit of you know, our a moonshot <laughs> type event but we nonetheless see it as something that fits into the bioquark mission. Uh, and ultimately, we think the, the learnings and the trickle-down event for all diseases of the central nervous system that require a regenerative response, whether that's Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, ALS, what have you, will be you know, invaluable. So uh, we see this as, you know, while the, the severe disorders of consciousness, whether we're talking brain death or coma, deep coma or PBS, are extremely important, and have gotten no resources of any type from sort of the pharma industry, we see the project as something that feeds into a much wider basket of uh, central nervous system uh, repair and regeneration. So the primary goal is not to raise the dead, but to, well, maybe to raise them, but to do some good research in the process. At, at this step, stage, uh, that that is all we're doing. And uh, you know, we've... <laughs> we've We've had the argument in the past that it's it's what it's one of the uh, the odder ones where people you know they're very concerned uh, that uh, we may succeed at, at this uh, in, in the terms of the transitioning of of a subject from a brain dead state to one of deep coma, um, you know, as if we would do something as monumental as that achievement and, and then just stop. Uh, you know, our goal is to ultimately in time, and I can't say whether that's a year, five years from now, transition somebody through the multiple stages of the 
disorders of consciousness spectrum, uh, of which there are many. Uh, but yes, it is our goal to uh, undertake the, the complete process at some point. That's not happening tomorrow. And presumably, hopefully, the patient will have retained their memories and they will be as they are supposed to be. Uh, we have placed our bets on uh, thinking a little bit outside of the uh, connectome-centric model of the central nervous system. Uh, we, we feel that uh, consciousness and memory is indeed a function of the brain, but we think it's uh, a little bit beyond that. And I think there's just a, a range of phenomena out there uh, that has been studied over the years uh, from uh, lower organisms whose brains uh, be completely destroyed and regenerate, which retain uh, memory uh, from all of the, the unique situations in humans that a connectome-centric model just can't explain, whether we're dealing with terminal lucidity or correlates of consciousness in uh, hydroencephalic children uh, or the you know, just the sheer amount of turnover that uh, one's brain goes through in a lifetime, let alone the amazing turnover in each neuron that occurs during a lifetime. We feel that there is a lot more to the, the area of consciousness and memory, and, and this project uh, will help elucidate a lot of it. And some of the most exciting work, and it's, you know, it's being done by uh, you know, sort of friends of ours up there at Tufts and, and Mike Levin's group in terms of uh, non-central nervous system information storage and some of the things that are coming out of Tufts nowadays in regard to this, we really um, have to think broader. <laughs> and we think that uh, ultimately uh, there will be as equally exciting insights in terms of central nervous system regeneration coming from the area of consciousness and uh, memory storage coming out of this program. Ooh, that is a rich subject. I know that one of the frequently said things in debates about AI is you can't really have a brain without a body. This is... This is the nature of uh, non-central nervous system information storage. Uh, we, we forget uh, that the nervous system came later in evolutionary context. There's organisms out there with brain, without brains <laughs> that process information electrochemically. Um, and so... As we were talking early on in the interview, there's just a lot of conservation in nature out there. Uh, and ultimately, the genome that we possess uh, didn't fall out of the sky. Uh, it's been developing over hundreds of millions of years. And you know, we just cannot overlook uh, these dynamics. Uh, they exist in nature. We have to understand them. and We can't take too limited a view in 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 what many would argue is probably <laughs> the biggest issue out there in terms of the hard problem of consciousness. We, you need to look rather broadly at all sorts of opinions and uh, research programs to ultimately answer that question.
undoubtedly comparative neurobiology will continue to yield some great insights and uh, living cadavers. Is there a large body of literature about this already? Most of the living cadaver research uh, that you know, we've dug up has been focused on uh, company X or research institution X uh, looking to study drugs uh, that for one reason or another, they can't study in living humans or the animal models don't apply. Uh, typically, what we've seen a lot of chemotherapies that uh, they want to give a doses that just would kill patients and they want to study various, once again, pharmacodynamic, pharmacokinetic properties and so forth. Um, we have focused a lot uh, on mo you know, animal models of traumatic brain injury uh, in our own internal work. Uh, but, you know, so what we are putting together is, you know, not just the learnings from the particular program, but also uh, a lot of what is reported in the literature. And you know, over the last 30, 40 years, I mean, you can dig into the literature and though they're highly debated and, and argued about, there are many papers out there talking about uh, you know, reversal of brain death events uh, that have occurred in the past. You know, they did not have good outcomes. <laughs> But nonetheless, these papers uh, that go back uh, a few decades now show that things are not always black and white as they pertain to this area of the most severe disorders of consciousness that there are. You know, at the end of the day, um, while this is a, a different type of topic and something that the American public and you know, the public at large uh, may have to get a bit used to, uh, we think the time is appropriate uh, for such types of interventions to occur. I mean, we're dealing in the U.S. and other countries nowadays with, with all sorts of regulatory and legislative initiatives to get drugs to no-option living patients faster, whether that be expanded access programs, right-to-try laws, and so forth. So we think the, uh, the concept of of working with subjects like this with parental and sort of family approval, it's it's the right time in in the context of what's going on in the rest of the human biomedical intervention space. Anything that I have missed? The you know, the only thing we like to mention, though, we you know, we are we we are found in sort of many of the same circles as, as others in the anti-aging community, the longevity community, and so forth. Uh, and while we are not a uh, sort of positioning BioQuark as a, uh, an anti-aging company per se, uh, clearly the, the implications of turning back uh, biologic regulatory state, uh, which is sort of the base of, of the aging process in our opinion, um, when we look at things from this higher level regulatory architecture as opposed to the genomic outputs. But when we look at these areas, we do realize the implications for uh, aging uh, as well as death or the interventions in death uh, and uh, are, though not, you know, we've, we've spent our time uh, working on some gerontological models in the lab, 
understanding how the egg and ooplasm uh, is responsible for resetting age of the new genome uh, on a daily basis everywhere around the globe. Uh, and this is uh, indeed a target of ours, or as a, a side effect of anything, but um, something that we will be keeping a close eye on uh, in our therapeutic interventions uh, in terms of the potential outputs of the research towards uh, age reversal and longevity.